Once again, I want to welcome all of you who have joined us online to uh, study this passage in Philippians. Welcome to our study, and I hope and pray that uh, tonight we will be encouraged, greatly encouraged, and instructed by God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have maintained your word for us. We thank you for this epistle, which Paul, being born along by the Holy Spirit, wrote initially to the communities of faith in Philippi, and we're grateful that they have been guarded and kept for us so that we might study them, we might learn the very things that you intended us to learn by carrying along your apostle, Paul, to write these words. Father, we fully believe that your word is inspired, that your word endures forever, that is forever settled in heaven. And we know that you do not change, and therefore your word does not change. We bless you for that, Lord. And I pray that as we study tonight that we would be encouraged in our walk uh, of faith in this world, that we would be lights to others, that we would help one another, encourage each other, and lift one another up in our respective communities, Lord, that we might walk in the footsteps of the Messiah and be a light in this dark world. Father, we know that you have the victory and that your Son, Yeshua, our Messiah, in whose name we pray, and who is our Savior, O Yeshua, that you abide at the right hand of the Father, and that you're coming again, and one day we will see you face to face. So we thank you for this time of Pesach, as we remember the exodus from Egypt and its spiritual picture of our own individual exodus out of the ways of uh, sinful living into walking with you in the Spirit. So, Lord, we bless you for your gift of salvation and for the gift of your word. We bless you in Yeshua's name. Amen. I'm reading today from uh, the NIV. Again, we're going to read chapter 2 of Philippians. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with the Messiah, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Messiah Yeshua, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Yeshua Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, 
continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Messiah that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Messiah Yeshua. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Messiah. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Okay, so we're going to be looking just at the... Uh, well, the very end of verse 7, but we, we finished 7 last week, but I wanted to add this uh, paragraph at the bottom of page 87 because the um, uh, English translations differ on where they put one of the, the phrases here between verses 7 and 8. So I write, it should be noted that modern English translations differ as to whether being made in the likeness of men, that phrase, is the final clause of verse 7, or if the next clause, being found in appearance as a man, should also be included in verse 7. The King James Version, New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, and the New International Version, and others, put this phrase as the beginning of verse 8, while other English Bibles, for instance the Net Bible, the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the Complete Jewish Bible, uh, the CEV, and so forth, include being found in appearance as a man with verse 7 and begin verse 8 with the phrase, He humbled himself. But since we have continually used the New American Standard Bible as our basic English text for this study, uh, we're going to start now to move to, to verse 8, and it begins with being found in appearance as a man. Again, if you're a little confused on that, some of the English translations put being found in appearance as a man as part of verse 7, the last phrase in verse 7, rather than making it verse 8. 
And I suppose if people were reading different versions and reading out loud together, that might cause some confusion. All right. So verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this phrase, being found in appearance as a man, it's, the, it's also a participle. Remember, the participles are in English ing uh, words. So being found is, is the participle. Uh, it defines the pouring out, that he poured himself out by, as we learned in verse 6, taking upon himself the form or the nature of a bond slave, by being born in the likeness of men, and then being recognized as a common man. So this would be the third of these, being found in, uh, in the common way, right? Uh, being seen as a common man. The NASB being found in appearance as a man could more literally be rendered and in appearance being found as a man. One commentator, Hawthorne, translates, and being recognized as a human, which gives the general sense. The hymn has utilized general poetic synonyms in the terms form and likeness and appearance, and their differences should not, I think, be overly stressed. Paul is just using different words uh, with similar meanings to give it that hymnic kind of approach, as these words are obviously uh, written to be memorized very quickly and even perhaps to be sung. Though the word appearance, schema, denotes that which is outward and not necessarily essential or permanent, its force here, and I'm talking about that in terms of the Greek word, it's used very often of appearance, its force here should be seen in connection with its near counterparts, especially the previous use of the Greek word morphe, that is, form, and we find this in verses 6 and 7 of the previous context, and the word likeness, homoioma, both of which emphasize the reality or actual substance of an object, a reality, and here in our text, the physical and real physical body of Yeshua. What is the obvious point? <laughs> well, I don't think it's anything that I need to prove you, to, to those of you that are listening. I don't know some of you uh, well at all, been only acquainted perhaps. But the idea that he looked like a human but really wasn't, as we'll see, uh, was a, a heresy that got started very early in the emerging Christian church. But these words in our text would make it quite clear, absolutely clear, that it wasn't just that he looked like a man but wasn't, that he actually took on humanity. He was a man born of a woman and took on the very stature of humankind for himself. Now, I recognize that this is really beyond our ability to fully explain. How can the God of all the universe, who had no beginning and has no end, the all-powerful one, the very creator himself, humble himself and take upon himself human uh, nature. Well, I can't give you all of the answers to that. It is a mystery. It can only be comprehended by faith and accepted by faith. And even then, we will come to the end of ourselves in terms of being able to explain it fully. But So both of these words, 
whether it's form or likeness, emphasize the reality or actual substance of an object, a reality, and here in our text, the physical and real physical body of Yeshua. The obvious point is that Yeshua, in his incarnation, identified in every way with mankind because he became man himself. It was not some trick by way of illusions, but Yeshua, the eternal Son of God, participated fully and participates fully in becoming human himself. As another uh, commentator, MacLeod, puts it, there was nothing in his appearance to distinguish him from anyone else. There was no halo, no glow, probably not even anything that made him particularly handsome or striking. Not a head would have turned as he walked. He looked utterly ordinary. So these medieval uh, portraits of Yeshua, or pictures of Yeshua, with the halo and so forth and so on, misses the very point. He was born as a baby boy, granted through the miracle of a virgin birth. But nonetheless, he grew in stature, in wisdom, and in favor with God and man, the scriptures teach us. So, that is really the core mystery that we have in our Savior. But it's not entirely mysterious. We ask ourselves the question, why? Why would he have done this? Because it was the only way that he could redeem us unto himself. Very early, as you can imagine, in the emerging Christian church, a teacher by the name of Marcion, the first of the great heretics, devised a distinctive Christology in an attempt to solve the problem of evil in the world. Since the Bible clearly teaches that there is one and only one true God, the problem of evil begs the question of why God allows it in his universe. Why, does he, why doesn't he just eradicate all of the sin? And we know that this is called the problem of evil. If God is in control of all things, why does he allow evil to persist? Well, there's all kinds of answers we could give to that uh, very philosophical question. But one of them is, in order that he would be able to reveal his love in a way otherwise he would not be able to. God is love. How has he proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt? It's by sending himself, his own son, to take on the woes and the pain and the utter indignity of this fallen world and to do so in order to redeem a host of people that no one can number from every tribe, from every family, from every kindred, from every tongue to be his eternally. Marcion attempted to solve the problem of evil by adopting the idea that there were, in fact, two gods, the imperfect, wrathful war god of the Old Testament and the unknown god, the spiritual father who revealed himself in Jesus. So, you can imagine that Marcion also did, had, had no uh, like for what, we, what is called here by this author of the Old Testament or the Tanakh. He essentially rejected it in almost in its entirety, uh, he received only the Gospel of Luke, 
And that, that's amazing because when you study the Gospel of Luke, as we'll look at some of the passages uh, tonight, it's one of the most obvious of speaking of Yeshua being God in the flesh. Well, this Marcion and those who followed him taught that Yeshua did not have a real physical body, but only an apparent or phantom body, a mirage of sorts. This came to be known as docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, to think or to suppose or to consider, holding that the body of Yeshua was not a physical reality, but simply a, shall we say, divine, but a projection or phantom that made it look as though he had physicality, and thus people supposed this to be the case. Of course, docetism was declared a heresy and absolutely contrary to the scriptures, for it essentially denies the virgin birth, the suffering of the cross, the blood that was shed, the resurrection of Yeshua's physical human body, and the eyewitnesses and testimonies of the apostles. Interestingly, of all the apostolic scriptures, Marcion, as I said, considered only the Gospel of Luke as authentic scripture, and it is in Luke's Gospel that we read the history of Yeshua appearing in the upper room subsequent to his resurrection. Remember the story of the road to Emmaus. There are two of his disciples, not one of the, not any of the twelve or the eleven, but uh, ultimately uh, they were disciples of Yeshua, and um, they encounter, or Yeshua comes up to them, or comes walking with them. The two disciples who walked with Yeshua return to Jerusalem in order to find the eleven and tell them that Yeshua was alive. This is just following his resurrection. He's alive just as he promised. There in the upper room, while the two were telling their story, Yeshua suddenly appeared. And here's what we read in Luke's Gospel. But they were startled and frightened, and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? <laughs> in other words, did I not tell you that the Son of Man would, would raise from the dead? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. You see, all of those aspects of that showing of himself were to show them beyond any doubt that he was indeed the very one who, who was crucified, who lay in the tomb until the first day and arose triumphantly. And what a time to be studying this passage because it's this very week that we have celebrated this. I know some have asked, well, why does the church celebrate uh, so-called Easter Sunday, this coming Sunday? Well, because they're using a different calendar. If you, t if you use the biblical calendar, then clearly Yeshua ate the Passover. That was the evening that became the first day. And on the 15th of Nisan, he was crucified. He was laid in the tomb. He lay in the tomb until the first day of the week when he rose from the dead. Now you say, well, wait, that doesn't say three days and three nights. Well, any part of a day and any part of a night could be counted. And that's well established in, in the ancient way of counting days. 
The very fact that Luke carefully records Yeshua showing them the wounds he received by being impelled upon the cross, and that he asked for food and ate it before them, makes it absolutely clear that, in the mystery of the Incarnation, Yeshua, the Eternal One, took upon himself true humanity, flesh and blood, and being fully divine, had taken upon himself true humanity, and would therefore remain fully divine and human throughout all eternity. Such utter identification with those whom he would save through his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession was absolutely necessary. And you might say, well, Tim, why do you keep uh, putting all four of those uh, together to say that's what was required for our salvation? Wasn't his death and resurrection enough? No, not according to Scripture. According to the Scripture, he ascended uh, up on high in order to intercede for all who would be his. His ongoing prayer is a continual part of our eternal salvation, maintaining us and keeping us for himself. So that's why I say he would save through his death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. And all of these are absolutely necessary. For the punishment of sin is death. And thus to pay the penalty of sin for all those whom the Father had given to him, it was necessary that he give his life in death for them, and that he would be resurrected to show the power he has to overcome death. For death is ultimately separation from God. When you study the whole concept of death, we see it at the very beginning of the Scriptures. Why is it that Adam and Chava were required to leave the garden, which was symbolic of the very presence of God? Because sin brings about death, and that's contrary to God, and to be separated from God is the ultimate aspect of death. But we will die unless Yeshua comes in our lifetime, which wouldn't that be wonderful, and that's what we hope for. That is possible. He can come at any time. But if we do end our days, death is not permanent for us. We will be resurrected unto life with him forever. So that's why the death and the resurrection, as well as the ongoing uh, application of salvation to all who are his, is necessary for our eternal salvation. So, for death is ultimately separation from God, and to bring all those for whom he died to live eternally with him in the very presence of the Father and the Ruach is inevitably brought to reality by his own resurrection. If we, and this is the genius of Paul again, if we are in the Messiah, then we have died with him and we have resurrected with him. Paul says it in Romans 6 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Just as sure as Yeshua resurrected from the dead, so we who are in the Messiah Yeshua by faith in Him, by the work that He has done through His Spirit, bringing us, bringing us to repentance, giving us faith to lay hold of Him, then most certainly, even as He resurrected, so will we, and thus we will forever be with the Lord. And what do the Scriptures say after that? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
So, Paul goes on to write, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The hymn goes on to say that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The phrase, becoming obedient to death, may invoke several ideas. First, there is a subtle reminder of Yeshua's divine nature here, for in the case of fallen man, he has no choice with regard to death. We cannot put it off. When our days are numbered, that will be it for us in terms of living on this earth as we are now. So in this sense, we could not become obedient to death. We have no uh, nothing to say about it, ultimately, depending on God's providential uh, record for our life. In this sense, then, the hymn reminds us that death could have had no claim upon him had he not been willing to submit himself to it. This truly emphasizes the giving of himself for those he would save. You see, if he became obedient, what does that mean? The idea of obedience to death surely invokes the picture of Yeshua's obedience to the Father in terms of fulfilling the mission for which he had been sent. There was no other way for those whom God had chosen unto himself to be redeemed and to have clear and lasting eternal fellowship with him unless the sin was paid for. And that could only have been done by an infinite life who was without sin. Do you see what happens when people meddle with the biblical doctrine of the Messiah? When we give way on any of these biblical aspects, we undermine the very salvation that he has purchased for us. So, the mission that he was on was nothing less than securing the eternal salvation of his people through a vicarious death for their sins. In other words, again, this is Paul's term to be in the Messiah. We died with him. We arose with him to newness of life. This means that the Father counts Yeshua's death as being my death, my penalty being paid for the sin of which I have. In this regard, then, his obedience to death was his yes to the Father. But we should not diminish the anguish that such a response of obedience fostered within his human soul. In his prayer, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, which we find twice, once in Mark and once in Luke, we hear the agony of the task to which he was called, and we see his obedience in the next words, Yet not my will but yours be done. It's, again, it's beyond our full ability to comprehend the agony that our eternal Savior went through to redeem us. And do we know for certain that he understood what that agony would be before it ever came? Of course. He's one with the Father. He knows all things. Now granted, I've used this expression before. I think that he willingly and voluntarily gave up the use of his omniscience 
his all-knowing, because it says in the scriptures that he grew as a young boy and he grew in, in uh, stature and in wisdom and favor with God and man. So he learned as he went along. But even to submit himself to that, knowing what it would be, is amazing. He said, Please, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. John puts it this way in chapter 13, verse 1 of his gospel, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them completely. He loved them to the end. He did everything that was necessary to bring us to himself. When we come to recognize this, when we come to dwell upon it, it causes us all the more to say, I want to give him glory. I want to give him a life that makes others see how great he is. We don't just, this idea of rely and relax. No, that's not the faith that comes from knowing Yeshua in truth. We want all the more to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to live in a way that others will understand and even ask, Why, what, what is it with you? What propels you? What gives you this courage, this desire to be the person you are? It's because I have come to understand what it cost my Savior to bring me to himself. Matthew in his gospel put it this way, And this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And that's the words of Yeshua. His pouring out included his willingness to accept death as obedience to his Father, as well as the infinite expression of his love for all whom he would save. Yet thirdly, his obedience to death was not only as the servant of Adonai, but also as a servant to those he came to save. Even as he washed the feet of his Talmudim, of his disciples, in his final Pesach, so he said that he had come to serve, not to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. He showed himself to be the servant, washing the feet of his disciples. He didn't come to build his name up on the placards or to make himself the point of everything. He deserved that, but he came as a servant. He had come to seek and to save those who were lost. And so his obedience to death was also a function of his serving sinners. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and perfecter, we could say finisher, of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before him? <laughs> it must be the redemption of his people, the cleansing of his bride, according to Paul in Ephesians 5.26. Thus, his willingness to endure the cross involved his assessment that the joy of redeeming his people outweighed the shame of such an ignoble death. In this way, his obedience to death had both the Father and the redeemed elect 
in view. He was submitting to the will of the Father. I know that the scriptures don't usually use this kind of language, but one wonders if we don't also see the Father submitting to the Son. Now granted, the Father sent him. The Father uh, gave him this mission to do. But did not the Father give to Yeshua everything necessary to accomplish what he was to do? Why? Because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. When Yeshua was being tortured upon the cross, did it not break the heart, if we can use a human expression, of the Father himself? Of course, any father would feel that way, seeing his son treated as Yeshua was. So, we are the joy that was set before him. Is that very difficult to take in? But does that not propel us and encourage us more and more to be what he wants us to be? To honor him in every aspect of our lives. And then Paul goes on to write, even death on a cross. The final phrase in the downward descent of the hymn, that is, the cross, is the, is the most difficult and the most pain-filled aspect of this hymn. But the final phrase in this downward descent of the hymn brings us to the lowest point possible. Not only was Yeshua obedient to death, but he gave himself to a death of the most cruel sort. Everything that you can read in the history books about crucifixion, if you take the time to study it, it's, it's just whoever thought of this death uh, penalty uh, had to just be cruel. Crucifixion was an unusually cruel and painful method of execution, quote, generally reserved for slaves, robbers, assassins, rebellious provincials, and the like. You didn't cross the Roman government. <laughs> if you made a big thing about being against the Roman government, you'd find yourself executed. And if you were the, the worst of uh, thieves or whatever, you'd be executed on a stake, hung out for everybody to see. It was particularly abhorrent to the Jews since one who was executed by being left to hang on a tree was cursed of God according to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 22 through 23. It's a little difficult text to understand. Does it mean hung on the cross overnight? Does it whatever? But it says cursed is the one who is hung on a, on a tree. Thus, Messiah's death by crucifixion was the ultimate in human degradation. Such a death is a sign of God's curse. We read this again, quoting uh, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21:23. Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." Another author has put it this way: One can go no further in identifying with humanity than in experiencing death. But death on a cross is the most humiliating and painful death. This death was particularly revolting to Romans. Cicero said in one of his works, The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears, and that to crucify someone was to 
hang him to the tree of shame. From this low point in the pouring out part of our hymn, where Yeshua pours him out even unto death on a cross, a change to exaltation is introduced in our next verse, and the way down turns to the way up. What does this teach us? The path of humility gives way to exaltation. As Peter wrote, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Now verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The change from the downward spiral of degradation to the upward move to exaltation is signaled by a strong connective, Dio Kai, represented in the New American Standard Bible by For This Reason Also, which is a very literal translation of the Greek. The meaning of the connection is, as a consequence, or, and the addition of Kai, the word and, indicates that it is the expected consequence. The exaltation is not so much a reward for the self-abnegation um, of Yeshua as it is the inevitable outcome in the divine order of things. Yeshua came to fulfill what the Father gave him to do, and did he fulfill it? Yes! In fullness, beyond what we can imagine. This is precisely what Yeshua himself taught, that self-humbling leads inevitably to exaltation. We read his words in Matthew 23:12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In the case of Yeshua, however, since his self-abasement was on the level of the infinite, the corresponding exaltation is also of an infinite nature. Right? He's been exalted. He's been given a place far above the heavens and the earth. No one else can even come close to his exaltation. Why? Because he returns to the position he had even before the creation of the universe. From all eternity, in the bliss of Father, Son, and Spirit, together as one. The former description of the humiliation descent, when he emptied himself, was given in stages, but not so for the exaltation. The risen and ascended Messiah is found at once exalted at the right hand of the Most High. In the phrase, God highly exalted him, the words highly exalted translate one Greek word, huper upsoo, which is found only here in the apostolic scriptures. It's only found one time in the apostolic scriptures. Here it is. This compound word, which is the preposition huper, meaning beyond much or more, plus hupsoo, to exalt, means to super exalt, to raise someone to the loftiest heights. The NIV gives the proper sense, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. It is not as though Yeshua is given an exaltation higher than he had in his pre-existent state, but that in his post-resurrection exaltation he now is seen for who he truly is and always has been, the one who reigns above all. This verb, huperupsoo, is used by the Septuagint in Psalm 96.9, by the way, I've given you the Hebrew there too, but it's actually uh, the Hebrew is 97.9, 9, 
uh, Septuagint numbering and, and the Tanakh numbering are a bit off. But here's what the verse says. For you are the Lord Most High over all the earth. You are exalted, there's our word, far above all gods. The language employed in this hymn of Messiah, therefore, clearly denotes the position of Yeshua in his exaltation as the reigning sovereign of the universe. Can you see how detrimental it is for those who want to diminish the deity of Yeshua? The Father is not above the Son, nor the Son above the Father, nor the Father or the Son above the Spirit, nor the Spirit above them. No. You say, wait a minute, Tim. There has to be some kind of order in their uh, particular power and so forth. No, there isn't. Yeshua himself, as we'll see, is the creator of all things. And yet the opening of the Tanakh says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we accept the scriptures as they truly are, then we must accept this mystery. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. They cannot be divided, and yet they do have individual identity. Now you say, how, that, how is that possible, Tim? <laughs> in our world it's not possible, but in God's uh, being it is. And the only way we can understand it and accept it and revel in it is to accept it by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the very evidence of things that cannot be seen, that is, understood fully. Oh, we'd love to understand it fully, but we never will, because we're not infinite, we're finite. And these are infinite realities that only God himself fully comprehends. So Paul goes on to write, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. This position of utter sovereignty is emphasized by the fact that Yeshua is given a name above every name. What? what? Wait a minute. Is his name above yod heh No. His name is equal with yod heh In the Semitic sense, a name functions not only to differentiate one individual from another, but even more to reveal the essential nature and character of that individual. The word translated bestowed, karizomai, uh, was used in the giving of honorific documents, lauding officials and civic-minded persons for their beneficence. Its use here may therefore have covenant overtones in the sense that Yeshua as the servant of Adonai has been granted universal recognition as the divine co-regent, meaning his sovereignty and eternal divinity is one with the Father and the Ruach. Sure, he lowered himself he became subject to death. But he is exalted to the highest place, which is what? One, equal with the Father and the Spirit. Consider these words of the prophet Isaiah. I am yod heh Now you say, well, Tim, why don't you pronounce that? Because we don't know how to pronounce it. I'd rather, not pr- I'd rather spell it out than mispronounce it, if that's okay. I know there's a lot of tangled uh, kinds of uh, arguments about that, but the reality is, and I can show it to you over and over again, yod vav in the texts that we have, without vowels, could never be certain about how it is to be pronounced. So I say, what did he say? I am yod vav that is my name. Who's speaking this? (laughs) 
Well, the one who gave revelation to Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Thus the name that is above every name can only be the very name of the Eternal Himself, that is, yod heh vav -Heh. Together the Father, the Son, and the Spirit make up that reality. Obviously, for Paul to be using this language to emphasize that which the human mind cannot fully grasp, for the incarnation of Yeshua itself encompasses the infinite reality of such universal concepts. Thus, the name which is above all names absolutely identifies Yeshua as the eternal, all-powerful, omnipotent God, one with the Father and the Ruach. You say, but Tim, he came as a human being. I know that. That's the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh, and so forth. You know the verse. We cannot untangle it or describe it to our own finite satisfaction. But we must accept it as what the scriptures clearly teach. His name bespeaks this reality. As in the Tanakh, where, for instance, Avram is named Avraham, the giving of a name reveals the significance of an event or a covenant relationship. No longer shall your name be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, there's real question about how what that means. There, There's the possibility that it means father of multitudes and so forth, as we say, as it says here. Um, the exact etymology and so forth of how that's going to work in the Hebrew, uh, there's a lot of different options. But nonetheless, he changed his name to mean a f that he is a father of multitude of nations. Abraham did not change when given the name Abraham, right? Rather, the name is given as a declaration of what has occurred. In Abraham's case, the ratification of covenant promises. God had promised, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And therefore, because it was by his seed who is the Messiah, as Paul clearly teaches us, comes from the line of Abraham. So also with Yeshua, the giving of the name which is above every name is a declaration, not of what he has become, but of who he is and who he has always been. The fact that his divine sovereignty was masked in his being poured out makes the declaration of his name all that much more magnificent. The name is not specifically given in this stanza of the hymn, but in verse 11, Kurios, Lord, is the name that all confess, and it is therefore warranted to see this as the name that is bestowed upon Yeshua. Once again, this is not a new office or position, but a clear and unmitigated revelation of his true position as sovereign over all. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he said in Matthew 28:18. All authority? Does that not make him equal with the Father and with the Spirit? And they equal with him? Yes. The one who existed from all eternity in the very nature of God, who is himself the Creator, is the one who poured himself out in the Incarnation for the sake of becoming the servant of Adonai. Yeshua's pre-incarnate exaltation is stated by John at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Did not John 
open his gospel with precisely the same wording as uh, Moshe did with Breshit in the beginning was in the beginning God created in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being yet having emptied himself or poured himself out he was known upon this earth as a common servant among men who was executed as a criminal and even worse as a blasphemer and was therefore despised and rejected. But he is now and forever seen and known to be the Lord of all. And Adonai, yod heh is the one who has made this universal proclamation. The Son in whom the Father was well pleased is and always has been the exalted King, heralded by the heavenly host and proclaimed to have all of the majesty and glory that only such a position possesses. Well, you can see that this hymn gives no option if understood in its context and in its wording and in its parallels to uh, things in the Tanakh and in the Gospels. One must, even if one can't fully explain it, and none of us can, that Yeshua is God in the flesh. And to diminish His divinity is to undermine His ability to bring eternal salvation to all those whom the Father has given to Him. Well, I hope this has been uh, helpful, and that's where we're going to close for this evening. Thank you again for coming tonight, and we look forward to being together next week, Lord willing, as we continue in our study of Philippians.